This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Revolutions and uprisings. Chinese cinema rarities. Game design bubbles. And the Ananerba. The rattle of gunfire, the sound of chanting in the streets, the noise of barricades being barricaded and unbarricaded is disturbing the tranquility of our nice little D20s and D8s and miniature figures in the gaming hut, leading us to connect a very current event to its applications in gaming and storytelling. That event is, of course, the Egyptian revolution and or coup, depending on which way you want to look at it, assuming you can't be both, and I think it kind of is, and Egyptian politics, which is very clouded in conspiracy theory, is very difficult even for Egyptians on the scene to figure out what is going on, and it's even more difficult for North American game designers, but I thought we would start with a few little observations about that and then move on to the broader subject of uprisings and uh, revolutions in narrative storytelling. So, the thing that I understand about Egyptian politics is that even if the army seems to be doing a good thing, they're not doing it for a good reason. They're doing it to protect their own power and prestige. And in the last go-round, they made a calculated bet that the uh, Muslim Brotherhood was a safer horse to ride than the uh, left liberal democracy forces uh, because, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the middle of a democracy? How do you make a deal with the people? You can make a deal with a political party like the Brotherhood, but now they have, with these mass protests that uh, were undermining the Morsi regime, they decided that they had a bit of buyer's remorse and have uh, switched sides. Is that how you understand the situation, Ken? Well, uh, we don't know that they've switched sides. As you point out, the army is always on the army's side. Yes. And um, in their own formulation, I'm sure they say that they're on the side of you know the, the nation of Egypt and uh, as, a, as a concept, the Turkish army had the same excuse when they would go in and uh, have a coup d'etat against various uh, popular uh, uprisings in the 60s. Yeah, so nobody launches a coup saying, we're just doing this to loot the country no. and, uh, and assure more boot uh, polish on our boots. But the, uh, but the Egyptian army, you know, it has not necessarily switched sides to, you know, the, 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 the tiny scrim of uh, liberal... Uh, westernized uh, Egyptians, it has pretty much just, it may, as you say, it made a bet on the Muslim Brotherhood playing ball. The Muslim Brotherhood tried to purge the army and restrict its influence in the economy and in the court system. And so the army said, well, then the hell with you, and uh, pretty much put the brakes on any attempt by the Brotherhood to clean house in Egyptian, what they call the deep state. So when you've got a country that's basically got 40% malnutrition and um, uh, spiraling bread prices, you, getting 33 million people out on the streets is not as difficult as it might be. So the army basically waited for that to happen and then moved in once more to be the saviors of the state and to try again with another round, this time of pliable technocrats. But they're certainly not, you know, um, 
marching into the street and machine gunning people in the name of genuine people's democracy, since they just are machine gunning the last example of genuine people's democracy in Egypt. So we'll see. Uh, I suspect that the best case scenario is we return to military dictatorship, and the worst case scenario is we get a uh, decade-long uh, terrorist insurgency like we got in Algeria when their army uh, stepped in and knocked off the uh, people who had just won a relatively free election in Algeria. Right, and the knock-on effects of a long civil war in Egypt are going to uh, eclipse the heck out of the consequences of the one in Algeria or the one that's currently on in Syria, and so we really got to keep our fingers crossed that the narr the narrative that they're spinning in order to justify themselves has at least enough of a, a branch of reality that that doesn't happen. But uh, I don't know enough of it about it to be hopeful or unhopeful. So let's uh, switch gears to something we do know about, which is uh, gaming and storytelling. Now, the uh, uprising or the revolution is a staple of exciting uh, storytelling. So how would you go about spinning that into something that a role-playing campaign could revolve around? Well, the easiest and I think the classic way and probably the friendliest way um, is to involve the characters in the heroic insurgency, to have them meet up with the underground, uh, you know, in the country of the Dark Lord or at least of the insufficiently nice Lord, and they realize that he's a bads man and his uh, black suit, black uh, armored anti-paladins are riding around slapping maidens and stealing rubies and doing all those sorts of anti-paladin-y things. And they start working with, you know, heroic dwarves in a literal underground or they start working with other dangerous misfits, basically adventurers like themselves, and become the core of a revolutionary cadre or revolutionary cell. And this is a narrative that we see in all genres in popular fiction because, of course, the people who write the vast majority of popular fiction are Americans who <laughs> consider that our founding narrative. And so, therefore, the heroic insurgency is sort of something that we like to write. And that's the exciting, stirring, black and white, good guys, bad guys version of it. But if you look to most examples of revolution in history, you get either what we're seeing now in Egypt, which is a complex, multi-faction tussle with all sorts of competing interests, some of which we are... Uh, sympathetic toward and some of which we are to various degrees unsympathetic toward. So a game that tried to bring more of a real-world sense of uh, political history into a campaign would have the players' uh, characters involved in a revolution, but they would, uh, first of all, have there be more than one side that they would have to deal with. They would uh, need to recruit factions that they didn't necessarily trust after the victory conditions occur, and they have to start looking at the difficult trade-offs of how ruthless they have to be in order to succeed in overthrowing the current order, and how much blowback they will feel if they go ahead and do those ruthless things. Or you could even take a sort of a... a, a humanity stat uh, idea and steal that from a vampire and give you sort of a, uh, a morality stat that you have a continuum of, of your principles against your realpolitik. And as you go through the uh, series, you have to decide how much you are willing to sacrifice of your original idealistic self in order to affect the change you seek. Yeah, the uh, classic example in Syria is that the really, really tough fighters, the guys you really want on your side, 
turn out pretty much to be the most al-Qaedified and uh, jihadist of the of the of the fighting cadres because obviously these are the guys who've had experience fighting on battlefronts since the invasion of Afghanistan the first time in some cases so they're uh they're fairly uh you know powerful and the equivalent would be you know in in the fantasy game or in the alternate history game you know you may not trust the cadre of um dark elves or the cadre of Nazi war criminals but they're the guys you need if you're going to overthrow the, you know this uh, oppressive lord or get the uh you know any chance of opening up the political situation you know whether you you just want to loot it because you're a standard adventuring party or because you see a possibility of bettering the lives of the people around you which is a relatively unconventional motive for uh role playing games but is certainly one that uh could be encouraged and your mention of afghanistan inspires another approach which is that you are not the revolutionaries involved in this struggle, but you are a small force from outside the uh, either the prototypical, you know, freelance troubleshooter guys, as you might see in Ashen Stars, or uh, it, you could be the, you know, forces of an outside government who are trying to affect the outcome of somebody else's civil conflict. And, you know, of course, the lesson of the uh, American involvement in the first Afghanistan conflict uh, is that uh, you have to be cognizant of who you're empowering. And uh, that could be another situation that brings in the grays of real life morality and politics as, again, you're trying to change the situation on the ground, but who are you willing to ally with and what long-term consequences are you going to have to deal with? And you could even structure a game such that you are uh, you either shoot ahead a generation in time or even switch characters and you have an initial uh, scenario in which you play the guys who are going in and trying to change the outcome of somebody else's rebellion. And then you can jump forward in time and then you're playing either the same guys or a different bunch of guys who are trying to then deal with uh, the results of that initial uh, interference because it's uh, much easier to insert yourself into someone else's civil conflict than it is to adroitly navigate that and get the outcome that you think you seek. Yeah, and moving, continuing up that continuum, many, uh, certainly old-school Dungeons & Dragons or something like Birthright uh, or even something like Vampire where the characters, as they get more powerful, are wired into the society, wired into the power structure, they can start facing a, re a rebellion against if not against them specifically, against the side from which their power flows. And maybe they're sympathetic to the general goals of the rebellion. Maybe they're the equivalent of uh, the Marquis de Lafayette in the French Revolution or uh, some of the uh, Girondists who think, yeah, we don't like the current king and we think that probably there's room for reform and we can probably sort of direct this revolution against our personal political enemies or against that one bad guy in the black cloak who keeps thwarting our attempts to do good from a position of power. And then, of course, they get caught up in the general uncontrollability and chaos of a revolution, something where, uh, and it's hard because a lot of role-playing characters don't actually have any stake in the society and would be happy to let the whole thing burn down. But if you've got characters or you've got a game in which they have a stake in a society, something like, like Traveler or, or whatever else, giving your characters the job of navigating the revolution or the uprising or the coup d'etat from the other side, either trying to stay alive after a sudden coup d'etat has surprised them or trying to manage a rebellion 
or co-opt a rebellion uh, against their, you know, the the, uh, the the side from which their user fruits and experience points flow is another interesting challenge. And I think you can uh, certainly, I think playing that out in Vampire in, in sort of a modern day context would be really interesting because obviously if anyone is the vampires in Egypt, it's the, it's the Egyptian uh, military and its deep state of crony capitalists and um, uh, state-owned industries. Another arc you could follow, there's the classic pattern in, in revolutions, which you saw in the French Revolution and again in the Iranian Revolution of the initially broad-based uprising that then uh, the uh, guys who are in control of it uh, increasingly uh, become the more and more radical, ruthless, extreme ideological types who then institute a terror and a lot of their uh, initial allies are the ones who end up on the chopping block after they run out of elements of the old regime to uh, kill. So you could then kind of almost go from a more sunny or at least clearly good and evil uh, dichotomy into something where your former allies uh, start to turn on you. And again, you have to navigate the uh, power politics of that and try to hasten the process by which the extremists are uh, either exposed and uh, removed from uh, power or they just uh, you lose and they stay in power as you uh, get with the Iranian regime, which has uh, remained various degrees of radical ever since. Yeah, you don't necessarily have the same option that the French revolutionaries did of just, uh, you know, deciding fair cop and either just going back to the countryside and hiding out or in some cases actively aiding uh, Britain or Austria or other uh, anti-revolutionary powers in overthrowing the, the, the radicals. So is there a, a sympathetic framework by which to play the defenders of the old order? Is there a, uh, you mentioned the uh, American revolutionary experiences being, having a really strong imprint on a popular narrative. And uh, one of the ways that that plays out is a sympathy for the underdog. Is there a way to sympathetically uh, get a bunch of players on board to play the overdogs and uh, throw down a an, a popular uprising I, I think that you know as I say if the over if the players are powerful enough or wired enough into the society they recognize that enough of their their power influence their character sheet comes from the existence of you know the existing priesthoods or the existing monarchies or the existing uh, megacorps or whatever it is you should be able to get them to, you know, at least defend the, the, the existing state against an uprising by emphasizing the radical elements in that uprising. Like you point out the, you know, the Shah was a terrible guy, uh, Louis Sixteenth and the uh, Bourbon regime in France, not much better. So joining the French or Iranian revolution seems like a no-brainer unless you're the one guy in the power structure who sees Robespierre or Khomeini coming over the hill and says, well, maybe we're actually not going to wind up with a uh, broad-based constitutional monarchy like we all want. And again, this favors the sort of player character operating on their own. You're sent in to defuse this future radicalism before the revolution can eat its own children and start slaughtering people. And the other thing you can do is just pop culture it way up and make the, uh, the subversion obviously drip with the tropes of evil. So it could be, you know, the the cult of a sinister god or uh, people infected by an alien parasite or, you know, the breed of heroic protagonist monsters who are 
even eviler than you are. Mm -hmm. And so you can just, uh, you know, again, very clearly signal that these are the, uh, the, the bad guys, that there's not actually a, a popular uprising, but some sort of force that is uh, undermining the pillars of society and that the uh, apparent popularity of the rebellion is in fact just some sort of ruse or trick or mass hypnosis or some other obstacle that, uh, although a large obstacle is one that you can uh, realistically overcome in the course of a, a few sessions of uh, adventurous play. Yeah, and, and again, the problem with that is not so much that it's unrealistic, because plenty of revolutionary movements are, in fact, you know, controlled by the equivalent of orcs or Nazis or vampires or whoever your your bad guys are. The trouble is that there's not a lot of pop culture models for players to know what to do next. I was uh, briefly looking for heroic counterinsurgency narratives, and there just aren't any really in the English-speaking world, which I think, you know, speaks speaks well of us, but it does make it very hard to play, unless you're playing maybe the Lensman, I guess, is the closest thing where they they think they're putting down a criminal uh, conspiracy, but it turns out they're actually working against a subversive power that's trying to overthrow all human space. But, you know, the Lensmen are, are hardly a particularly contemporary example, and I think it's fairly tough to, you know, be on the side of the Sheriff of Nottingham after hundreds of years of knowing in your heart that Robin Hood has got it right when he goes off into the hills and dodges taxes. Right. What you're much more likely to actually see is a narrative in which the forces of the ruling elite turn out to have been penetrated by parasitic worms as they were in a next generation mm -hmm. uh, two-parter or, uh, you know, your alien influences or whatever, and that you can then overcome this evil force within the elite and then everything's okay again and you can let the good guy elite go back to uh, ruling again. Yeah. Another approach that you could take is the way that, uh, you know, real people experience this, which is that a revolution is something that interrupts and makes more dangerous their everyday lives uh, so that you can use it not as the main driver of a scenario, but an obstacle that comes up in the middle where, you know, you have your classic uh, scene nights, black agents adventure where you are going to get a, a thumb drive full of information and you go to a, a small republic in the Balkans. And then while you're there, uh, a an uprising springs up and adds all sorts of different levels of complication to your escape as the vampires are increasingly hot on your trail. Yeah, certainly you could, Im uh, you could imagine an, a Knight's Black Agents ad adventure that was taking place in Egypt in, in real time. And the, and the campaign is, you know, ticking along and everyone's in Egypt. And then th these news breaks out and you're suddenly, you know, thinking, well, this is too exciting not to put in my story, but it's really going to complicate things. Uh, I had a similar experience with uh, Unknown Armies when I was running a uh, a game uh, scenario set in Lebanon, and they were going to go take the uh, Spear of St. George out of uh, the place in Lebanon that it had been kept uh, by, the, by the cult. Uh, and while they were in Lebanon, the Lebanese Spring happened, the Cedar uh, Rebellion, and there was the uprising against the Syrians, and we sort of worked it into play such that it was the act of revealing the spear of St. George that had caused the cedar uprising and, uh, and, and created this, uh, this, this anti-Syrian movement. And so I set the next adventure in Zimbabwe just to see if it worked twice, but sadly it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think we've uh, hit a lot of different points on ways that you can uh, take the horror of uh, real world events where people are dying on the street and try to, uh, understand it and process it through the mechanisms of pop culture and gaming. So I guess we can move on to our next segment. 
in the next segment, the whir of the projector, the uh, flitter of light and darkness on the screen in a comforting blend of uh, sunset and chiaroscuro, and the smell of hot buttered popcorn tell us that we have entered the cinema hut. But this is no ordinary cinema hut. This is a cinema hut from the mystical far-off land of China. And Robin, you have uh, been immuring yourself in Chinese cinematic history, I suspect, as part of your fancy-schmancy Torontonian cineast lifestyle. So do you want to sort of break down what we, the uh, the, the, the simple uh, Iron Man-consuming audience, need to know about Chinese cinematic history so that we can appreciate how much you're going to gloat at us about what you've seen? Well, it's interesting that you uh, mention Iron Man because Iron Man 3 sort of reflects the latest new stage of Chinese cinema. But if we want to go uh, way back in time, uh, basically you see a uh, cinema that splits into multiple cinemas as China splits into multiple entities. So you have a classic period, which is, occurs, uh, there's a silent era, and then it goes up to the, uh, there's a sound era in the 30s uh, situated around uh, Shanghai. Um, probably your easiest way to access that is to uh, look for a uh, Hong Kong film uh, from about 10, 15 years ago called Actress or Center Stage, where Maggie Chung plays the uh, famous doomed leading lady of the uh, 30s uh, cinema based in Shanghai, and it has a portrait of the kind of, uh, I've got a warehouse, I've got a camera uh, studio system that they ha had in place then. Uh, and then you have sort of a, a dead period when the uh, Japanese occupation takes place. After that, of course, you have the uh, revolution, and that splits uh, China and its cinema into the, the mainland, uh, which goes through a, a series of uh, different periods through the upheavals of the communist regime there. You have a Taiwanese cinema that is uh, kind of uh, dormant and uh, moribund, at least at this point. Maybe we'll find some treasures excavated from uh, earlier eras there, but sort of flowers uh, with an art cinema that begins to appear in the 80s, uh, the films of Hu Hao Shen and Edward Yang, uh, some of which are, uh, particularly Hu Hao Shen, uh, pioneer this sort of slow cinema movement that pervades a lot of international cinema at this point, in which I have to confess I am not super attuned to. Yeah, me either. And Edward Yang, on the other hand, is uh, really quite splendid. His film Yi Yi, if you haven't seen it, is on Criterion and is uh, well worth grabbing. And then, of course, you have, from 49 on, uh, Hong Kong develops its own much more commercial, entertainment-oriented cinema that is rooted in the sort of capitalist protectorate there that is uh, run by the uh, British. And so you, uh, I, in an earlier episode, I talked about the Wong Fei Hung movie from uh, that really early period, and they've continued to have a lot of genre cinema with a really strong audience appeal component, and that goes along until the uh, 60s and 70s when it's dominated by the Shaw brothers, and they have a very particular aesthetic. Then in the mid-80s, uh, the Golden Harvest production company comes along, and with uh, Choi Hawk and the later Jackie Chan films and uh, uh, John Woo and so forth, you uh, start to see, even apart from Golden Harvest, a very different style, a much more kinetic, uh, more contemporary, but still very uh, different in particular style of cinema. And that's where you get the uh, classic period of uh, Hong Kong cinema. At this point, the mainland has... Uh, uh, well recovered from the Cultural Revolution and is then more devoted to 
a uh, its own sort of flavor of uh, art cinema as typified by the films of uh, Zhang Yimou. So then you start to see a fusion of uh, Hong Kong and mainland cinema as China reclaims Hong Kong, but uh, as it does in so many other ways, uh, uses its energy and spirit to infuse uh, its own uh, more sort of art-driven uh, movie making. And for a period of about a decade, you see a transition where the uh, slower, gentler art films of the mainland gradually take on the qualities of the now revitalized Hong Kong cinema. So you start to see the mainland art director like Zhang Yimou doing beautiful wuxia films like uh, Hero and House of uh, Flying Daggers. And now you're starting to see China enter the blockbuster era where you have these uh, enormous films, mostly period films, and are also partnering with Hollywood because China is now uh, one of the biggest potential markets for Hollywood product and uh, Iron Man, for example, Iron Man 3 had a different version that played in China that had some Chinese film stars in it and really annoyed the Chinese audience because it was so obviously just sort of dropped into the narrative. But anyway, I thought that we would. Uh, so there's your, your potted history of Chinese cinema that you can use to impress people the next time you uh uh, go to uh, eat noodles or a drink at a uh, cocktail party. But I thought we would talk about some of the really cool rarities that I've been seeing at uh, the TIFF Lightbox that sort of illuminate different eras of Chinese filmmaking that have been buried until now. And now there's an effort to bring these archival films uh, back to life and restore them uh, in an era where, uh, particularly on the mainland, they are uh, less concerned about what the films of their past say about them, I think, because they are comfortably in the past in what is now essentially a capitalist oligarchy that still retains the communist semiotics. Now, these uh, these neglected treasures that are coming back, were they films that were seen as classics and then were purged? Were they films that are seen as classics as people have studied them in, you know, Samus.prints or in prints that circulate? Like, for example, you look at the later works of Orson Welles that never got any kind of real distribution, stuff like The Trial or like Chimes at Midnight. Obviously, those are hugely influential films, but they were hugely influential because literally everyone that saw them was a filmmaker. Is that the kind of case we're talking about with these films, or were these big, you know, popular successes that were then ground under the treads of the tank by the Cultural Revolution? Well, the first film I want to talk about is one that was actually entirely suppressed uh, on its making. It's by a director <laughs> named uh, Lou Ban, and uh, he was making movies in what was the... Uh, this film is from 1957, and it signals the end of his career. Um, <laughs> and as, as one might guess from the date. <laughs> right. And he is uh, working in what is called the Hundred Flowers period, which was sort of a, a glasnosty period where more... Uh, or a Prague Spring, where more artistic expression was being permitted. And so therefore he was making the same kind of films then that you still see or saw a few years ago out of Cuba, where there's a very sort of uh, a constrained, but nonetheless pointed satiric jab at the power structure, right? It's a, a comedic release valve. So he made mm -hmm. uh, films about venal party officials, uh, not in a way that threatened the overall order, but indicated that those particular guys should get their act in order and in a way, you know, allowed people to sort of knowingly realize that not everything was perfect about the system, but, you know, it 
could be worse. And that's certainly the the, the message that you uh, get from a lot of uh, Cuban comedies as well. And this film clearly shows his frustrations with this process because it's a triptych of little comic vignettes, all of which feature a Laurel and Hardy style comedy team with the classic a fat guy, skinny guy combo. Uh, they, the permutations of their personas are different in each of the three vignettes. And the setup is basically that the film studio is putting on little plays for the benefit of everybody at the studio to discuss, including the uh, censor. And so they perform these plays, which of course, as soon as they pull the curtain up, are shown in full cinematic style. They're not shown under a proscenium arch or anything. And the first one, again, is uh, one of his trademark parodies of a venal party official. And the problem in this instance is that he goes off to a spa and he loses his wallet and is uh, assumed dead and has to come back and deal with the bureaucracy. But he's distracted by the fact that the funeral arrangements put in place by his uh, former lackey are nowhere near spectacular enough for his tastes. Right. And the next one is just a really small vignette where the comedians uh, show off their stage comedy stylings, which have a bit of that acrobatic vaudeville style that you would uh, see presumably on stage at the time. Uh, and it's very physicalized. And it's just a very simple vignette in which uh, they're braggarts uh, at a dance and they, uh, claim to be as great as the dance company who are there. And then they're pulled up on stage and do their kooky physical comedy bits. And then the last one is about two unfilial brothers who are both trying to get rid of their, uh, their mother when they find out they can't exploit her effectively enough as uh, free labor. And so again, it's, it's caustic, but it's just suggests that there are uh, people even in the new system who are, uh, have not achieved a state of perfection that one might desire. And then after each of the vignettes, a uh, broadly caricatured censor gets up and says a lot of stupid, infuriating things and kills each of them in turn. And that basically with a comic twist in which the critic gets a very, very crude slapstick comeuppance is the film. And as you, those of us who know our Chinese history know, this was perhaps not a film to make if you did not want to be heavily persecuted uh, when the Hundred Flowers era ends. And indeed, that is what happened to the director of that film. So this somehow, though, this survived. The film was suppressed, but it, the, the materials weren't destroyed. They were kept on hand. And now there is a digital print with great black and white picture quality and the soundtrack is fine. And it has uh, lived long enough to... Uh, survive uh, into the current era of looking back. Moving then from uh, the end of the Hundred Flowers to the <laughs> to what is even worse than the end of a Hundred Flowers, the, the Cultural Revolution, the next film is, uh, is it uh, sort of prefiguring that? Is it a response to that? Is it, you know, again, is, is it the sort of thing that was shown, a big popular film that, that got suppressed, or was it a film that got made and then wiser heads prevailed? This is an example of a big popular film that was made just before the Cultural Revolution and shows you what popular filmmaking was at that time. And it's a, a stirring a color a backstage a melodrama called Two Stage Sisters. And it was made by a director named Ji Jin in 1962. And 
Looking at it today, you see that, first of all, it's a rousing piece of popular entertainment, but it's also a thoroughly conventional work of Chinese communist propaganda. And that's the interesting thing about Chinese communist propaganda is that unlike uh, comparable propagandas like Brecht's theater or uh, Eastern European film, it always maintained a, a root in popular entertainment and was entertaining. And you can mostly today, even from our perspective, enter into it uh, and enjoy uh, the uh, strong, uh, albeit strongly stylized acting and follow the story of two Chinese opera performers from their hard scrabble country roots in the thirties. Uh, there's a, a sort of a, friendship that turns into rivalry. Uh, one of them is more uh, dedicated to the theater and uprightly moral than the other. And as they uh, go from the country and being exploited by their uh, venal manager to the big time in Shanghai, uh, where there's a slicker, more exploitative manager that uh, one of them goes off with and the more serious one is trying to resist. The serious one winds up engaged in uh, socially conscious, i.e. communist theater. And uh, when the revolution comes, uh, affects a reconciliation uh, with the other one. So there's a underlying humanism under this narrative that makes it still very accessible, even from a very different point of view. And it's only until the sort of tag end of the film where it's occurring after the revolution and you've got the red flying flags and everybody's speaking in that really oppressive jargon style that you had to talk in in order to survive in that system that the um, morality starts to invert from a Western democratic perspective. And so you would think from the face of this that this very entertaining film, uh, first of all, propaganda would presumably be more effective if people are entertained by it, if they like it, if they follow its message, if they want to go see it instead of having it forced on them. But nonetheless, this turned out to be too bourgeois just a couple of years later when the culture of a revolution, speaking of a period when a revolution turns into madness, it happened much later in the uh, life cycle of the communist revolution than it did, say, in the terrors of uh, the French Revolution or the Iranian Revolution. But as the society began to eat itself, the very things that are stirring about this film became unacceptable. So the fact that it had... Uh, Chinese opera in it, would it in itself have been controversial because this was a point where, uh, like any true cult, they tried to cut off the society from everything that had been before. And for a period there, uh, an interest in traditional styles of entertainment that predated the propaganda era suddenly became a verboten or whatever the Chinese for verboten is. Hmm. Now, so did the, um, did the Maoist regime or the Red Guards, did they sort of confiscate all these prints and burn them and there was like one in Taiwan that survived or how did the physical mechanics of suppressing something that like you say was a big blockbuster hit work I mean if you wanted to suppress every copy of Star Wars in America because suddenly you know um, uh, you've decided that you're on the side of the Empire and uh, you don't want anyone to have ideas about being a rebel alliance I think the thing is is that if you control all the projectors uh, you don't actually need to burn all the negatives you just uh, don't show them. And I guess uh, someone took all these things and put them in a vault somewhere. That's the way, you know, a lot of films uh, survived uh, the Nazi occupation in France, mm -hmm. for example, is there were just, uh, and I assume there were people in the studio system who just took the measures necessary to 
uh, save this film. The in this case, the visual print is uh, had been restored to spotless condition. There are some issues with the soundtrack, but the the print is in uh, perfect shape. So I think it was suppressed basically by not being shown and was mm-hmm. uh, heavily criticized. And of course, being heavily criticized in the Cultural Revolution probably got you sent to a farm somewhere to dig a trench with your fingernails. You know, it's a real time machine, not in t- only into uh, an bygone era of Chinese history, but into an era of, of cinema that we're not that familiar with because, you know, unlike Japanese cinema, if you're a, a fan of uh, international film, you can, can kind of trace the whole history of uh, Japanese cinema, even through the war. Uh, but this is an uh, era of cinema that until this new wave of restoration has begun to occur has sort of been lost to us. Now, um, just sort of staying on that, is the motivation for restoring it political in the sense that remember when we were all good, happy communists together and there was none of this, you know, uprisings and, and falter all about voting? Or is it economic because they realize there is a market for it either in the Chinese, uh, you know, nostalgic uh, middle class or in the Chinese diaspora or in American cineasts? I'm not clear. I, I can't think that they figure this has a huge commercial value. Although who knows, you know, in a future era of, of Netflix or movie, maybe you'll be able to dial all of these up and watch them on your iPad. Well, I mean, again, they're, they, if it's a popular movie with, with Chinese people, because it sort of harks back to this, you know, better, happier time, you know, they can sell it for, you know, a dollar a, a, a Chinese viewer and not care whether any American ever sees it. Right. It, it, it might very well be the case. I'm, I'm not clear on what it is. I think my instinct, though, is to think that it's just the same reason that film restoration is done anywhere, which is that there are people who really, really love film history and want to mm-hmm. make it happen and make the requisite deals necessary and maybe convince people that there's a commercial value in it. Right. And uh, uh, I imagine that it is driven by the, you know, the same impulse that has the UCLA Film Archive restoring lost film noir films. Right. It's it's basically a matter of there are millionaire nerds in China, just like there are in California. Exactly so. Or rather, that is my assumption with uh, little actual evidence. Well, there you go. That's, you know, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that we um, uh, specialize here. Exactly. In the hut. So what's the what's the what's the next film that you saw? This seems like it's going to be uh, moving out of the time of genuine death defying uh, thrills into more safely repackaged death-defying thrills? Uh, well, we're moving to here? the uh, safety of Hong Kong ah, for uh, 1967's The Story of a Discharged Prisoner. And so, as I was saying earlier, the Hong Kong tradition is a much more Western-friendly commercial cinema, and those of us who know uh, Hong Kong cinema are going to be very interested in this, and I have a feeling that if any of these surface in any sort of uh, online access is this film, which is recently been rediscovered, but had to have been seen by a young John Woo because it is uh, very much the template for A Better Tomorrow, the way that Jean-Pierre Melville's uh, Le Samurai is the template for The Killer, meaning that it is not a remake, but it uses a lot of the same structural elements in its narrative and also stylistically, although there is no bloodshed in this, it is very definitely a proto- heroic bloodshed film. It's also a a film of social consciousness. So it's a film about a a safe cracker who pulls one last job and in order to try and save his wounded confederate 
gets caught, does a lengthy stint in jail, and then for the action of the film is then faced with the difficulties of trying to adjust to straight life, especially since there is a sneering evil villain crime boss who wants to re-enlist him in order to uh, knock over a safe. And he, uh, uh, just as in uh, Better Tomorrow, has a, a brother who has uh, gone straight and whose career his uh, existence as an ex-con is interfering with. And he, uh, in this film, uh, because the crooks prevent him from getting a straight job anywhere else, uh, winds up uh, at a social service agency whose specialty is the... Uh, care of paroled prisoners and trying to get people back into society. So basically the Hong Kong equivalent of the John Howard Society. Right. And there's a lot of the action of the film that is devoted to showing just how difficult it is for uh, prisoners to reform, especially in a social structure where just having an ex-con in your family is enough to get you fired from your job, even though you've done uh, nothing wrong. And in Better Tomorrow, the role of the uh, agency is taken by a taxi company that is run by an ex-con and staffed by uh, ex-cons. And so this has a, a fairly naturalistic, uh, on the scale of uh, Chinese performance uh, performances by the leads. And then if you think that the comic roles in uh, 80s and 90s Hong Kong cinema are over the top. Wait till you see this, because the, including the villain, uh, and also some other smaller, uh, mostly unsympathetic roles, the uh, comic mugging in some of the scenes is, uh, well, it would make Jerry Lewis say that, uh, you might want to pull that back a bit. Yeah, it, it, Bollywood directors are saying, um, dial it down a little bit, could you? Right, and there's uh, exciting uh, fisticuffs, um, mostly throughout, with the occasional knife drawn, and then at the end, the guns come out. And the uh, action sequences are uh, thrillingly uh, choreographed. And uh, the final uh, gunfight has this uh, a great uh, gag in it that uh, I'm sort of tempted to blow since no one will be able to see this film immediately, but maybe I won't. It's just one that I'm surprised uh, no one else has stolen. No but I guess off. now that this film has resurfaced, I'm just going to count the days to see... Uh, if someone steals the spacing out the bullets in the revolver trick. Now, so the, you mentioned the fisticuffs. Are the fisticuffs martial arts, and are the martial arts emphasized, or is it just like, you know, sort of the quote-unquote judo that's used in in uh, noir films as a, as a means of getting to the story and keeping the hero relatively unkilled? It's a more acrobatic form of judo, so it would not necessarily be out of place in, say, an episode of The Wild Wild West, which was also right. okay. famous for its fight choreography. So there'd be a bit more spinning and rolling and so forth, but it's uh, on the scale of martial arts fighting. It's it's not either the traditional martial arts of the Wang Fei Hung movies, nor are we yet at the point where uh, in Better Tomorrow, where people are yanked on cables whenever they get hit with a gunshot. So it's uh, right. a fun, well-executed, well-choreographed, but uh, less over-the-top fighting style. And uh, in, you know, filmed in 1967, it would be of the same period as the Wild Wild West. So uh, is there a cross-pollination? I know that there were um, Hong Kong fight choreographers beginning to filter over into America to make a series like Kung Fu and uh, the Green Hornet. Is there a similar sort of an effect going on, uh, a back a, cr a back cross-pollination, or is this just the, the, the excellent fight scenes, much like the excellent set decoration in the Wild Wild West, are simply a harbinger of what will come uh, in later eras of TV. I'm not sure that actual personnel crossover was occurring at this point, but 
it's Hong Kong. So, of course, they would have been getting uh, American television. And uh, at some point when, uh, you know, the Green Hornet occurs, you start to get that flow both ways. So there's definitely a, a continuity in uh, fighting style, however it was achieved. And is there a political component to the story of a discharged prisoner? Or, I mean, since there's obviously a social consciousness level and sort of a it is sort of a reform component, but is there a, a geopolitical component to it? Is there a figure you can either point to and say that's Britain or point to and say that's communist China, or is it really sort of street level that the politics It's very occur? street level. It's very Hong Kong is, is the, is society. And right. it's all about addressing this social problem within Hong Kong society. And uh, as you pointed out in our Wong Fei Hung segment, uh, you don't start to see that more overt, uh, politics start to appear until the 80s, which is not coincidentally the time when the handover starts to seem like a uh, a real thing. I would also point out that this has a great uh, crime jazz score uh, uh, with a fabulous credit sequence in which a uh, girl in a Catwoman suit is uh, doing the crime jazz frog with a crude paper mache globe. Uh, so that definitely uh, implies that uh, somebody had seen some American television. That's definitely something. And for a moment, I thought, oh, my, this is going to take place in a comic book universe. But then it turns out she's a stage performer. She's just wearing a Catwoman suit because she can. Yeah. Which is more than enough reason. Is there a, is, is there a, any commonality with what they call the Nikatsu action uh, stuff, the sort of B pictures that are coming in Japan at right around this time? Is, is there a connection to Japanese-type crime film? Or do you think it's coming out of, like you say, the Jean-Pierre Melville, the French New Wave, and also the American sort of uh, tail edge of noir uh, type uh, sensibilities? Where are they getting their street sensibility? Or is it organic and domestically created? Um, I, I think all four of those things. I think that this was a, a time when, uh, you know, John Wu as a young man was watching both the product of the domestic film industry in Hong Kong and Jean-Pierre Melville movies. And obviously uh, they would be seeing uh, Japanese movies in uh, dubbed or subtitled prints, and they'd be seeing American movies. And all of those cinemas all feed into each other in, in different ways. Now, there wasn't much feedback from the Asian cinemas back into the American, but they uh, definitely have a different flavor than the Nikatsu films, which are much uh, harder-edged and mm -hmm. much more laconic uh, playing style that you would recognize more from a, a Hawks movie, whereas here you still have the theatrical remnants of the big, big uh, Chinese playing style that doesn't really go out of fashion until uh, Johnny Toe sort of appears on the scene after the Golden Harvest era trails off. He's uh, concurrent with the Golden Harvest era, but he's the one who sort of continues with the torch of Hong Kong cinema and slowly brings about a more restrained uh, stoic uh, play style. And uh, I'm going to see him in uh, uh, person at a uh, Q&A coming up. So I think between the end of a broad uh, populist uh, playing style and the beginning of a new gloat, we have surely exhausted the popcorn here in the cinema hut.
time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Ironicus asks Ken and Robin, we're living in an explosion of new design, innovation, and creativity. Is this a bubble set to burst? If so, what might that look like and what might cause it? And I presume that Ironicus is asking us about the explosion of new design, innovation, and creativity in role-playing games. Uh, he is. I, I clipped his question slightly. All right. Uh, <laughs> um, certainly, Robin and I are, are, are competent to address all artistic uh, questions and cultural questions and historical questions. But in this particular case, we'll stick to our role-playing knitting. Robin, do you, A, agree that we are living in what I've called a micro-golden age of game design? And what do you think of Ironicus's... Uh, mordant uh, gaze into a future. I, I think definitely we are still in the early nascent flowering of role-playing. Role-playing is uh, 40 years old. So if you think of where uh, cinema was uh, after uh, 40 years, it is uh, not even entered the, the sound era yet. If you think of where uh, jazz was after 40 years, it is just uh, uh, moving into the swing era and bebop has yet to emerge. Uh, and uh, if you want to look back at other historical forms, uh, you know, the history of visual art has gone on for centuries, if not millennia, and continues to revive itself and change and reflect different uh, audience interests and uh, aesthetic movements. So that even if role-playing gaming does sort of hit a point where it's kind of explored everything and is only just recapitulating uh, its past as arguably uh, jazz is now, or, or even uh, just as arguably cinema is now, we've still got a long way to go before we hit all of the boundaries. And I certainly feel as a designer that we are just beginning to explore a lot of key areas. And uh, with the technological changes that await us, uh, the opportunities um, may well be, you know, that they may pitch us at the point where we're just at the big end of the silent era uh, if we're going to keep using that movie analogy and the uh, sound era of uh, ubiquitous tablet and mobile uh, aided tabletop role playing games uh, comes along, uh, we're looking at a whole new ball game and a whole new explosion of opportunities. Yeah, I think that um, to to say it's a bubble implies that it's being inflated by something unnaturally, and most bubbles are commercial bubbles: the tulip bubble, the D twenty bubble. The role-playing is, you know, for better and for worse, not particularly commercial at the moment. And currently, this flow of creativity is not so much caused by the vast fiscal or social rewards that come from it, but because the barriers to entry have come down and people who were gifted designers can express themselves and people who were genius designers can really express themselves. You have the, both the culture of the micro-game and the culture of uh, the web community flowering simultaneously, and I think not uncoincidentally, you're seeing that culture of the individual game designer also flower. And maybe we'll enter, you know, to use your parallels, the studio system uh, going forward, or maybe we'll continue to see the auteur uh, drive game development and design in the way that we're more familiar with right now. But I think that to ask if the bubble is set to burst, again, you look at something like the Italian Renaissance, that wasn't so much a bubble as something that was ended by the invasion of Italy and the sack of Rome in 1529. And since I don't think that uh, Western Massachusetts and uh, Toronto and Chicago and Seattle are about to be invaded by German mercenaries, we're probably going to keep seeing the game design bubble or the game design uh, golden age uh, go, as you say, from strength to strength. It, it, again, even if we've entered the sound era, 
in, in chronological terms, the sound era is immediately followed by the flourishing of the great golden age of the studio system in Hollywood. And if you're looking at, for example, the English drama, which begins, you know, in the 1540s, 1550s, 40 years after that, we're just about to see Shakespeare show up. Uh, so I think that we've got a real uh, potential to, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet. And people will maybe look back at the at the first flowering of uh, Vincent Baker and Luke Crane and Ron Edwards and those guys as the guys who led the way to the next big boom. And or, or maybe that it's going to be uh, Monty and Jonathan, uh, Monty Cook and Jonathan Tweet, who by uh, welding D&D into a modular system have opened up something that's going to uh, take us all by, well, not, maybe not by surprise, but but make us all astonished at its level of uh, penetration or level of power. I, d- I don't think that we're in a position of, of of looking for the end, because I don't think we've even mapped sort of, like you say, the sides of it. We are still sort of moving out. Something like Drama System opens up whole new possibilities for role-playing games. Something like Fiasco is a category breaker. I don't think we as a design community have even figured out what it is that... Uh, that uh, Jason Morningstar did, much less what we can do to uh, build off of that kind of uh, innovation and that kind of design. And that sort of creativity is being replicated all over the field. I, I, I think that it, it, I feel like you say that we're still sort of in the, uh, if, if not necessarily the early morning, we're certainly, you know, around brunch time in the role-playing golden age. Right. I think if we're facing some sort of external threat, you know, it's like perhaps uh, role-playing will be killed by the closing of the antibiotic window or by uh, <laughs> burning all the carbon uh, on Earth or uh, something like that. But Well, even then, though, I mean, a hobby that you play with paper and dice is going to be a lot more survivable than uh, cinema or um, uh, performance art. Well, except, you know, for all the cannibalism, I think that will be... I think the, the corpus of gamers will be quickly devoured. But um, <laughs> yeah. absent then, then that... Then all the cannibals will get heart disease and die. But I, well, we may do a big favor then for the uh, faster, uh, more athletic portions of humanity. Uh, those, of course, who, who aren't themselves the cannibals. Well, the younger gamers are faster and more athletic. I, I see them everywhere. But in, in terms of the, the external infrastructure of gaming, the advent of online communities and the direct sales that that allows and the sort of uh, cheap social media marketing uh, plus things like Kickstarter has, if anything, sort of removed the bubble potential that we've seen in the past where in the old uh, three-tiered system before the ability to reach your audiences directly if the three-tiered system failed you, uh, we did see big busts and bubbles, and role-playing became a bubble a couple of times in the hobby game industry, both with the uh, initial uh, 80s flourishing and also with the D20 boom, and then you saw uh, boom-bust cycles with uh, uh, first with Magic and then with other CCGs, and there was sort of a mini-boom with uh, uh, the, the click games. Uh, but these have all sort of found their levels, and now that even if you have a product that retailers and distributors don't know how to get to a willing audience, you've got another way to get them to a willing audience and to, uh, through crowdfunding, uh, make them even more impressive than they were before. Certainly, I expect a slackening off of uh, crowdfunding as people uh, discover their credit card bills at at a year-end review. But even so, as you suggest, the actual minimal level uh, production costs of putting out a cool new role-playing idea are in a non-luxurious format, essentially uh, close to Zippo. 
And uh, as the culture becomes increasingly nerdified and as uh, you start to see, you know, Dungeons and Dragons related episodes of Community and so forth, we are, I think, only going to see a broader audience. And, and of course, and to say a thing I always say, the way to nearly double our audience is just to continue our inroads into appealing to women. And then uh, there you go. We're twice as uh, big as we were back in the day where you could physically count the number of uh, women attendees as opposed to uh, I- industry folk uh, walking the aisles of Gen Con. Yeah. I think that if there is a threat to sort of that larger community that you're talking about, that sense that we're all of us role players together, it's the ongoing disintegration of retail, and that's not something that's unique to gaming. That's obviously going on in virtually all specialty retail, uh, you know, because of the pressures of, you know, internet sales and internet marketing and just-in-time delivery and all the other wonderful technological advantages that we've got now. And the thing that retail communities do provide and the distributors to, to by facilitating those communities provide is that sense of mass involvement in something. It's harder, I think, in a world with no robust distribution and few robust retail nodes, which is, I think, the world we're heading towards, for something to come out and suddenly be popular all across the role-playing uh, field, the way that Vampire did or the way that Shadowrun did. It's going to be, I think, a more regionalized creative hobby in the sense that you're going to have... We talked in the Derleth episode about the death of regional fiction. We may see a rise of regional gaming as you know the Western Massachusetts cycle may produce a really terrific role-playing game, but unless you are lucky enough to go to a regional convention up there, you might not hear about it because you are playing the really terrific role-playing game that the San Francisco scene has produced. And sure, people are emailing things back and forth, but role-playing is still very much a face-to-face social hobby. And although, you know, Google Hangouts or other uh, uh, tabletop uh, software, video software might mitigate that, I think enough of the fun of our hobby comes from simple primate FaceTime that it's going to be a little tougher to develop the national audience for a role-playing game than it was, you know, when the distribution system was functional and when the retail tier was, if not strong, uh, at least overstuffed. But then on the other hand, you've got something like, for example, Tabletop, Mm -hmm. which uh, is getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people watching a fiasco being played or other non-role-playing game uh, hobby game industry uh, products. And so there are going to be other ways to create that initial awareness and excitement. And you've got uh, an increasingly robust regional convention scene springing up uh, after a period where things were dodgy. And the thing about that is that people travel to them and uh, people who know each other online uh, use that as their um, meet space intersection point. And the, you know, the cultures get together and they exchange their oyster shells for their uh, antlers and go back to their respective communities with these uh, new exciting technologies. And uh, and I think that's how uh, things will spread. And that I, I certainly don't celebrate the uh, fallback of uh, retail, assuming there even was one, right? Because you were reporting actually a big spike in new stores that you heard about at GTS. Yeah. Uh, but let's, for the, the sake of uh, following the proposition, let's say that, that retail is falling away. Um, and I think retail is going to shift uh, to uh, more of an organized play venue, uh, which will fit board games better than it does role-playing games. But I I think retail is going to adapt just the way that conventions have adapted. Um, And uh, so I don't really see a lot of uh, 
uh, doom and gloom. I see us sort of seizing the tools of publishing and entertainment on a small scale uh, because we were the ones positioned to do it because our audience are the people who uh, built the internet. Uh, another point I just want to get back to aesthetically is that even if you assume that tomorrow a some sort of a variant of the toxoplasmosis virus strikes all of the present and future game designers and no one innovates formally anymore, uh, you would still have what you have in uh, film and in the novel and in other mature art forms where the forms have all been explored and set out. But as long as you are telling stories, as long as you have a human element to narrative and the reason that you're getting together to create stories together, you're still going to have interesting things being made and interesting things being played at the table. Because even though you know, most of the great innovations in film have already occurred. That doesn't mean that last year wasn't a great year for film. And uh, this year is looking like it's going to be another great year for film. And uh, I don't see why gaming would be any different. Yeah, it's not like the novel died between Daniel Defoe and James Joyce, right? I mean, there was... <laughs> even if you uh, minimize the experimental nature of something like Melville, you're, you, you look at just huge amounts of pure narrative fiction, just straightforward stuff that... Jane Austen and Daniel Defoe and Honor Balzac and Charles Dickens all would recognize as the same thing, but it's as variant as all of those authors are. And I think that in gaming, we can certainly see that kind of of uh, world design and storytelling and, and play style. I agree with your, uh, with your argument, I think I've made your argument, that the regional convention is going to be the salvation of our face-to-face -face hobby, that that is the thing that is the most exciting and the most uh, interesting thing about you know, sort of the social space of gaming, the, the or socioeconomic space of gaming that we see going forward. And I certainly would would hope that uh, someday, you know, we'll have a, a role playing devoted micro celebrity. You know, uh, Mila Kunis runs a D and D campaign on online or something, and and then we'll have uh, something that's more role playing oriented and less board game or card game or general hobby game oriented. Because I'm selfish that way, but I think that you know, even now you know, 100,000 people seeing Fiasco played is really great for our hobby. And 100,000 people seeing, you know, I don't know what else, uh, Once Upon a Time played is great for the stores that sell our hobby and great for uh, other aspects of those regional conventions that I, I so love. So I don't I don't begrudge that as a, as a channel either. Just, you know, piggybacking on whatever happens to be successful in our same general sphere, whether that's uh, card games or board games or miniatures games or clickety games or whatever they happen to be this uh, this uh, micro cohort, you know, role playing is always happy to be tagging along as um, uh, the uh, you know the kid brother or um, uh, older nerdy friend of that currently popular uh, hobby form. Right, and another thing to watch out for is what Google Hangout will eventually become. Mm -hmm. You know, right now it is uh, the six pound brick size cell phone of audio visual over the internet communication, but uh, as that evolves and becomes better, you know, people are already taking it up in large numbers and using that as a play venue yeah. when they can't get proof together. And that's not going to get any worse than it currently is. It's going to keep yeah. getting better. <laughs> Betamax versus VHS aside, there is going to become a global standard that works really, really well. Yeah, exactly so. So I think now that we've uh, spread a whole bunch of uh, sunshine and light all over the place, it's uh, time to uh, head into our final and much more sinister hut.
And that Sinister Hut finds us once again in the precincts of the Consulting Occultist. And once more, we are looking uh, at the Nazi Occult, which is Ken's uh, book for the Osprey Dark subline of the Osprey Adventures line. It is his work of imaginary nonfiction about Nazism and the occult. And this is part six of our podcast series in which we touch on the topics covered there in a fictionalized context and try to de-fictionalize them a little. And for part six, we're looking at the, and tell me if I pronounce this wrong and maybe you don't know either, the Ahanerbe? Ananerba. 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 So uh, what is this uh, thing that sounds like it should be the scientific name for a fuzzy caterpillar? The Ananerba is formerly the Studiengesellschaft für Geistes Urgeschichte Deutsches Ananerba, meaning the Study for Primordial Intellectual History and German Ancestral Heritage. Now, the Ananerba word, like many German words, means an inheritance, specifically something passed down by your forefathers. It's a, it's a, uh, ancestral heritage is sort of a, a weaker way of saying it because we certainly in the in the deracinated West don't much you know care what our forefathers were doing because we have iPhones. Right. So, so it might be called the word. It might be called the legacy in a heavy Gothic font. Yeah, the legacy. And then you know you, you, it's yeah sort of a Kraftwerk knockoff band. Um, but the uh, but the Ananerba itself was just what it what it sounds like a academic institution for studying the ancestral history the uh, uh, mythological mythical uh, anthropological. Uh, linguistic past of Germany, the Germanic race, uh, Aryanism in general, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as you might have guessed, it was founded by Heinrich Himmler because he wanted to have his own study group to look up crazy stuff. And that is the great tension at the heart of the Ananerba in that genuine German scholars, genuine historians, people who either were practicing what we would recognize as perfectly conventional archaeology or people who were practicing what we would recognize as misguided but not innately sinister notions of uh, runic study or linguistics or semiotics or symbology got swept up into Himmler's sort of uh, pet humanities department, which is what uh, the Ananerba was. Uh, Peter Lavenda has the great line, imagine the Oberlin humanities department with machine guns and you've got the Ananerba. And that's pretty much what it is. So, so there was an entry interview and they said, how crazy is your opinion about the Indo-European homeland? And they gave him their opinion and said, well, can you crazy it up? If so, we've got a spot for you. That was a good part of it. Part of it was that Himmler began by hiring crazy people. And then that sort of sets the, the corporate culture going forward. His, his first um, head was a guy named Hermann Wirth, who was a Atlantis uh, fan, believed that Atlantis existed in the mystical north in the land of Thule, and that uh, his Atlantis, however, was matriarchal and socialist, and combined with Hermann Wirth's complete inability to keep uh, decent uh, account books, meant that he was going to get purged sooner rather than later by the Nazi sort of uh, ideological police, and Himmler, in order to keep his Ananerba intact, after Hitler criticized Wirth almost by name during a Nuremberg rally, had to dump him and hire a real Indo-European historian, a guy named Walter Wust, who is a, an expert in Sanskrit, and as far as I know, his stuff is still you know, considered uh, valuable today. But Walter Wust also was a German of the 1930s and had no real problem with saying, well, yes, obviously we're the master race, and Sanskrit is a big part of the story of how we became the master race. So it's not so much that they were only hiring crazy people, but certainly if you were a crazy people 
I think you probably got to go to the front of the interview line. Right, until you got mentioned at the Nuremberg rally, which is not a yes. good place to be mentioned. Seldom a good thing. So in our real history, uh, before the mythologizers got a hold of this organization, were they up to anything occultic, or was it just sort of a spectacularly wrong crackpot scholarship? Well, they were up to some occultic things because there was a division of the Ananerba. There were a lot of divisions of the Ananerba. There were, uh, depending on how you count it, you know, somewhere around 50 what they called institutes of the Ananerba that uh, studied all manner of things. And among the things they studied were uh, occult um, studies, right? They, they studied the, you know, German myths of magic and the German uh, myths of uh, uh, demons and ghosts and all things like that. Folklore studies, uh, fairy tales, myths. Um, and there was one uh, specific group called uh, the Überprüfung der Sonnenganten Geheimwissenschaften, which means survey of the so-called occult sciences, which uh, one can simply take these Zogananten out of and get a beautiful survey of the occult sciences, because it's very hard to tell especially when you're swaggering around in Nazi uniforms, uh, for exactly why you're piling up all those grimoires. But they had other fields that studied um, plant genetics from a Nazi perspective or entomology from a Nazi perspective. So what is the Nazi perspective on botany? Well, you have to figure out which, which grass is the master race, right? Or you have to figure out which grains were the ones cultivated by the Indo-Europeans that they fed their horses on that gave them mastery over, over Europe. And a lot of the so things... So does this, does this get us into Goering's Auroch project? It does probably get us into Goering's Auroch project, although Goering Gering, uh, <laughs> had the kind of um, uh, <laughs> innate uh, su suspicion of Heinrich Himmler that comes from having known Heinrich Himmler. And so I suspect his Auroch project was run by his own pet crazy scholars or his own pet... Uh, animal breeders. So, for for the benefit of the the audience, uh, explain a bit about Goering's and his uh, Auroch fixation. Uh, Goering fancied himself a great huntsman in the tradition of the of the great German uh, Prussian rural lord, and he wanted to go hunting things. And the trouble is that the most awesome thing ever hunted in Europe was the aurochs, the prime the primeval uh, sort of uh, European bison that was eventually the ancestor of the European cow, and he realized that the last aurochs had been hunted to death in the 17th century, but he figured that if you could breed things back to their previous state uh, genetically, you know, sort of go back along the ontogenic trail, which of course you can do, um, and, and we do it all the time with, with plants and animals, he, you should be able to breed him an aurochs so he could hunt it. And I think he may have not realized the time scale that he was working with, because Goering does not strike me as one of those guys who believed the Reich was going to be around for 10,000 years. I think Goering was, you know, in it for what he could get. But, you know, he had guys trying to breed himself uh, a European bison so that he could go hunt it and be an awesome huntsman like... Right, and even wanted to depopulate a populated area in order to create a preserve for them. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just good old uh, Nazi environmentalism. I mean, lots of uh, the Nazi sort of future world that was developed, and not necessarily by the Ananerba, but by people like, you know, totally sane people like Albert Speer involved depopulating a lot of populated areas and turning them into parks and nature preserves and, and that because the Germans, you know, were, you know, were very, very, uh, very, very green in their, in their politics. The Nazis were very insistent on sort of the reviving, purifying, health-giving powers of nature and the importance of being able to stand in nature's majesty and, um, uh, you know, strut around it in your jackboots. So does the scholarly, and of course we use the term advisedly, product of the Ananerba survive? Uh, the, the Ananerba published a lot of their reports 
and they were, to one degree or another, put with the other Ananarba records. There was an Ananarba journal called Germania that was published until 1944, and I believe that those individual issues survive. But so much of their reports were kept in Ananarba headquarters and, and, and were either published, um, you know, in crazy scholarly journals that did not survive the, uh, the post-war cleansing or were not published at all and got lost. So we don't really know a lot of what they published. And the other problem is that a lot of what they published, if they published it and it made it through the war, was about fairly nitpicky subjects and was written by Nazis, which means the German academic establishment is in two kinds of ways not in a hurry to translate it and and um, uh, and work with it and cite it in their own research. But for those of us who are seeking plot developments for our uh, narratives, uh, that gives you the fact that they were... Uh, looking for grimoires and researching old myths, and you can easily have uh, a lost or suppressed uh, paper that they uh, put their own misguided spin on, but which the protagonists of your story have to go and find and strip out the uh, uh, the, the craziness for the uh, deeper occult nastiness below that. Yeah, the the the, uh, the lost on report on X is certainly a good a way to dump a deniable narrative or a dubious narrative into your uh, magic or myth mythical background in your in your own history. And the Ananerva also sponsored expeditions, and some of those expedition reports survive, and some of those expedition reports do not survive because they were either classified or because they were crazy and were abandoned. But they sent uh, a guy named Irgo von Grinhagen up to research the... Uh, sort of the founding of the, the creation of the Kalevala, the Finnish national epic, and find out what its Aryan roots really were. And so he took pictures of witches and um, recorded uh, Karelian songs and generally was sort of, you know, looking around. It was basically ethnomusicology only done by, you know, Nazis instead of socialists. But it's the same sort of, you know, we're going to go find the, the pure, beautiful folk and get their songs down so that the man can't, uh, can't stomp on them. And it's the same sort of thing that Lennox is doing when he's going around the American South recording old uh, spirituals and old uh, blues songs. You're thinking of Alan Lomax? Lomax, right, not Lennox. Yeah. Yeah, Alan Lomax is doing, and it's in the same decade, in fact. And so the Nazis are part, in many ways, of a global intellectual approach that is this sort of, you know, be, maybe began with the British Folklore Society in the 1880s, but is certainly blossoming in the 30s, where we're going around and, and recording all of these primitive methodologies before they are wiped away regrettably by the advance of civilization. And, you know, the, re the regret is more or less depending on the researcher, and the civilization is more or less civilized, again, depending on the researcher. But you're, you see the exact same thing going on with the, with the WPA in America and with British uh, anthropologists going around India or Malaya or wherever else and sort of writing down all of the, the local chants. You get the um, Evans Pritchard is writing about witchcraft in the Azande in the same period. It's sort of their contribution to anthropology, and it's just done by crazy Nazi people, and so therefore is going to be ideologically slanted in a way that is both recognizable and immediately suspicious, as opposed to you know something that Margaret Mead writes about Samoa, which is just as nonsensical, but does not trigger alarm bells immediately. So the, the reality, historically, is essentially of a think tank of bad and disreputable scholarship. Mm -hmm. How does this get transformed by... Uh, later writers who are turning history into the mythology of the Nazi occult. Well, because of these expeditions that are so tremendously pregnant with possibility, there was 
genuinely an on, you know, series of Ananerba expeditions to Iceland looking for, uh, pre-Christian survivals, looking for mythic leftovers in the Icelandic, not just in Icelandic culture, but in Icelandic architecture. Uh, there was a guy named Herbert Jankun, who was a Viking archaeologist who was put in charge of looting museums in the Crimea for Gothic artifacts. And there was a guy named uh, Eric Troutman who wandered around through the Middle East, uh, mostly spying for the Sicherheitsdienst, the German espionage agency, but also looking for Aryan inscriptions and Aryan uh, survivals in Mesopotamia and in the old Roman Empire. And so from there to racing Indiana Jones to the Ark of the Covenant or trying to get the Holy Grail is not that far a step. And indeed, there is certainly, it is certain that an employee of Himmler's personal staff, Otto Rahn, was sent to find the Holy Grail. That's for, that's real history. And once you've got that, you hardly need to make up crazy stuff because that's already crazy. And then there are various, uh, uh, mythomaniacs like Edward Kiss, who was a, a novelist who wrote a bunch of novels about Atlantis, who went to uh, Tuanuku in Bolivia and claimed that it was the leftover uh, uh, remnant of the Aryan supergiants that fell off the moon. And so Himmler's like, that's the kind of talk we need more of in the Ananerba, and gave him a big old budget to try another big expedition to Bolivia. That obviously uh, had to be canceled because the war broke out, but Edward Kiss may or may not have gone to Ethiopia, he may or may not have gone to Kenya. I mean, until Michael Kater wrote his doctoral thesis on the Ananerba in the 70s, people didn't even know the Ananerba existed. And by people, I mean real historians. And so we don't know what kind of expeditions they might or might not have been up to. Uh, again, they wanted to go to the Canary Islands to look for the remnants of Atlantis. That seems like the sort of thing that's crazy, but it's for real. They weren't able to because Franco was at this point trying to back away from Hitler slowly because he suspected that uh, Britain w was going to invade him soon as look at him. But Again, they were up to all kinds of things. They tried to seize a copy of Tacitus from an archive in Ancona, Italy. They looted all manner of um, uh, possibly magical art from Poland. Uh, it, so the Ananerba were engaged in the sort of behavior that it takes only a tiny dusting of uh, crazy to make into role-playing game fodder. Right, and so accordingly, you've made them sort of an occult, secret police, espionage organization in Trail of Cthulhu. Yeah, and again, they were part of the SS. Uh, they uh, began as a sort of an independent research uh, operation that was run by the Reichsfuhrer SS. Uh, Wolfram Sievers, the Reichs manager, was the SS's man on the Ananerba board. Then in 1939, they became part of Himmler's personal staff. And then in 1940, they became, you know, Division A of the Allgemeine SS, the um, civilian SS, as opposed to the Waffen SS or the combat SS. So they gen they genuinely are part of that whole organization of, like I say, secret police and secret research that the SS uh, became part of. And they're, you know, even before then, they're working like um, Troutman was with uh, the uh, Nazi uh, SS spy organizations, the SD. And so therefore, it's not that far a jump. The only real thing that I introduce into the book, The Nazi Occult, that is literally made up is the program to create magical soldiers. The The uh, Zonderkommand Z. Everything else in there, with one or two expeditions that I think the uh, clever reader can figure out are imaginary, is something that either the Ananerba did or the Ananerba actually planned to do. And, you know, whether or not they actually found um, uh, 
the, the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant or any of those other things is the sort of thing that you can sort of agree to disagree on. Right. So we'll need a bit more historical research before we have an exact number on how many of them got their faces melted off by exposure to legendary artifacts. Right, because a lot of times they would cover that up. You know, they'd say like yeah. they died in a training accident or something. Exactly so. Uh, well, I think we've uh, uh, covered part six and are now ready to exit the podcast in an orderly fashion. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Invest in tulip bulbs and zip drives at KennerRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. 